0: Our great God, immortal, invisible, the great I am, without beginning, without end, we as a creature, we cannot even begin to fathom how glorious you are because you are so far above us and yet at the same time so near to us in the Lord Jesus and in the Holy Spirit. Shed abroad in our hearts. We know the Holy Spirit is a true teacher. We would know nothing, no truth of your word without the revealing work of the Holy Spirit. So we, we beg of you tonight, open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your word for the glory of Jesus. Amen. We are in John chapter 12, and we're going to look this evening at verses 20 through 36. Now, tying together what we've uh, seen thus far and where we're headed here, we've got to remember the raising of Lazarus from the dead. That joined two groups of Jews. Last week, we took a look at the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. There was that group of Jews that were with Jesus uh, when he raised Lazarus from the dead. And that is one of the reasons why Jesus said, he waited till Lazarus died so that they could see the greatest miracle yet. We saw in, in Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, it was a fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy that he would the king, the Messiah would come riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey. We saw that the, the crowd was, was yelling out, shouting, throwing palm leaves down, and uh, waving them and in front of him as he rode that donkey, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna meaning, Lord, save us now. That's what Hosanna means, save us now. Now, of course, the multitude, to a large degree, had a false understanding of the Messiah, just like the Pharisees and the scribes had a false understanding of the Messiah. And we learn from uh, other accounts, like in Luke's account, I believe, that the Pharisees in the crowd, they were telling Jesus, rebuke your disciples. Because when they were yelling, Hosanna, save us, meaning that's what that means, he said, they shouldn't be saying that to you. Tell your disciples to stop. You know what Jesus said? If they stopped, even the stones would cry out, I am that Messiah coming into Jerusalem, the Holy City. And we see that when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, he comes to the temple. And in coming to the temple, we have this occasion where where he drives out the money changers again. He had done it previously several years earlier but he's going to drive them out remember he was upset with them that they had turned his father's house a house of prayer into a a a place of a marketplace a den of thieves they were abusing the people they were overcharging them for the sacrifices and he said you have you have turned my fa- my father's house to a den of thieves now it's interesting at that time he referred to him the temple as his father's house. But you know what? This time when he comes in and you look at Matthew's account, Jesus, when he comes to Jerusalem, he begins to weep over the city. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who has murdered the prophets, how I would have gathered you like a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you would not come. He says there's not one stone left on that will be left in this temple. And he called it, interesting, your house. He doesn't refer to it as father's house anymore. He refers to it as their house. God had already forsaken national Israel. He had basically divorced national Israel. And in 70 years, he would destroy Jerusalem and the temple. Now we've got to we got to learn from all of this that what God is seeking is faithfulness. It's interesting that the Psalmist says, "He God does it though God required the sacrifices, what he wanted the Psalmist says is a contrite heart. He wants a contrite spirit. It's the attitude that we bring to our worship that the Lord is looking at. And we learn from From this passage, and if you look at John 12, especially at verse 20, it says, there were certain Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. Now, who were these? They had come up to worship because it was the Passover. And during the Passover, you had pilgrims all over the uh, Roman world come to Jerusalem for that period of time. And it says uh, they were true Gentiles, meaning these are uncircumcised converts to the monotheistic religion of Israel. They had uh, given up their pagan worship of their gods. They were known as God-fearers. And if you move later on, you're going to see when Paul goes into Europe, the first convert of Europe is Lydia, the seller of purple fabrics. And she is said to be a, a worshiper of God. She was one of these Gentiles who feared God. They saw the value of the Judaistic religion, and of course, she will, hearing Paul's message, will get saved. But these Gentiles would come. They were God fearers and <clears throat> these Gentiles were said, "We want to speak to Jesus," and they came to Philip, says, sort of as a go-between. Can you get us a hearing with Jesus? These true Gentiles wanted to talk to Jesus. And in this respect, the G- these Gentiles are going to be um, the seed. Uh, well, what Isaiah says, Jesus shall see his seed. I want you to turn over to Isaiah 53 for a moment. Isaiah 53 is that great messianic prophecy that is just mind-blowing because everything about it foretells of what Jesus is being crucified. It is an incredible account. 700 years before he ever came on this earth, we have specifics of what is going to happen to the Messiah. Now, in, in In Isaiah 53, look at verse 10. It says, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring or seed. He will prolong his days. Now, these Greeks probably did not understand that Jesus' substitutionary death, his atoning death, was that sacrifice that was necessary as the spiritual Messiah. And that this spiritual Messiah, through an atoning death, would be the only way they would ever get saved. They didn't fully understand that. Now, to to stress this, Jesus responds to them in verse 23. Take a look. Turn back to John 12. And in verse 23, Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, Jesus speaks now of his imminent death. He says the hour had finally come. You remember how many times... We saw in previous chapters in John that the Pharisees, they wanted to arrest him. They wanted to kill him. They wanted to to stone him to death and he would sort of just ease his way out in a mysterious way and the scripture says and the hour had not yet arrived. Jesus was not going to die until the appointed hour but that appointed hour was at hand and This appointed hour simply means not 60 minutes, of course. It means the appointed time had arrived, and the Son of God. And we got to understand this: Why did the the Eternal Son of God come into this world? He came for one purpose, and one purpose alone, to save sinners. You remember when the angel spoke to the Virgin Mary, telling her that this child that she is carrying miraculously is a holy seed. And the angel said to Joseph, this is what you're going to call him. You're going to call this son Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. So the whole purpose of the coming of the eternal son of God, remember God has no physical statue, I mean being. I mean, it's without form. We say that in the catechism later on. And the son was without form, and the eternal son will not take form until he is incarnated. And that God-man was called Jesus. Now the eternal son of God has flesh that the scripture says he will always have flesh. You know, when we get to heaven, you will be able to feel Jesus. You'll be able to see the scars, and you will see in the flesh because he became one of us to save us. And it was all voluntary, by the way. No one forced the the eternal Son to come uh, into this world like this. Turn to uh, Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. It's an exhortation here, Paul gives, to have the same attitude that Jesus had, or the Son of God had. It says, verse 5, Ephesians, uh, Philippians 2, verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus. What attitude was that? Who, although he existed in the form of God, "...did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, or that is, to be held on to. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, also God highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and those are on earth and under the earth. The death of the Son would be the way that the Father would glorify him. Now, Jesus said, if you turn back to John 12 here, Jesus said, He says, verse 24 or verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Meaning, of course, ultimately, the glorification is in his resurrection and ascension, but the death is a part of that. So it's the death, the resurrection, and the life, but the emphasis is on the death here because that's what Jesus is talking about. Through the death of the Son, God the Father would be glorified. Now, if you go back, well, we already looked at it in Isaiah 53, verses 10 and 11. It says that it, it pleased the Father to crush the Son. And in, in this That may seem odd. Why did it please the Father to crush the Son? Remember, what did Jesus say when he was on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he did forsake him. That is the only way that the salvation of sinners would be as achieved that the, the wrath of God against sinners, which we were, had to be dealt with. The justice of God must be satisfied. There is no other way. It had to be that way. And so it pleased the Father to crush the Son. You know, the worst, I mean, physical death by crucifixion is a a horrifying way to die, but that was not the worst part of what Jesus experienced. See, he'd always walked with the Father. He had that close communion with the Father, and all of a sudden now, that communion was lost. He sensed, he, he felt in his very being the alienation, the alienation that was absolutely crucial. That's why the Reformers understood when it talks about we descended, or the Apostles' Creed talks about he descended in hell. the, The Reformed understanding, which I believe to be the correct understanding, is that on his death on the cross, he experienced what hell really is, the abandonment of God upon him. And that is what Jesus felt. Remember in 1 John 4.10, it says, Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Remember, the word propitiation is a biblical word used four times in the New Testament. And what it means, it is the satisfaction of God's justice or wrath by means of a bloody substitute. That's propitiation. So the whole purpose of, of the eternal son coming to this world was to die. And Jesus knew that. As he grew up, he understood what his purpose in this world. And he always was trying to tell his disciples on multiple occasions. Son of man must go to Jerusalem. He must be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And he will be crucified. They didn't understand it. Now, Jesus' response that the Father would be glorified, and what's about to happen? If you look at verse 24 of John 12, he says, Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So Jesus, what he is anticipating is a great harvest, a great spiritual harvest. But that great spiritual harvest is not going to happen apart from the cross. It's going to be through the cross that that great harvest is going to come. And Jesus just tells a story that they would be very familiar with as farmers. You put a seed in 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 the earth And in one sense, it's biologically, I guess you can say it dies and then, you know, the the sprout will come up and then it'll eventually bear fruit. But there's not going to be that fruit until it goes into the ground and, as it were, dies first. And Jesus says that's going to have to happen spiritually. And so what we see here. It is this fruit. Now, what fruit is he talking about? Remember, the question came to him. The Gentiles wanted to talk to Jesus. And Jesus is basically answering their question. It's going to be this great harvest that's going to take place with the Gentiles will come about, but the the Son of Man has got to die first. And when the Son of Man dies, then you're going to see this great harvest With the Gentiles. You know, God had always intended to save the Gentiles. You can go throughout the Old Testament and you see several of these promises that God intended to save the Gentile world. And in that great controversy that arose between Paul uh, in Syria, Antioch of Syria, with the Judaizers who were saying, well, yeah, believing in Jesus is fine, but you got to be submit to the law of Moses. you got to be circumcised in order to be saved. And Paul says a great dispute with Paul, with the Judaizers, they couldn't settle it. He says, well, let's go to Jerusalem. Let's go to the apostles and, in Jerusalem, the, and we'll settle it. So they go to the great council of Jerusalem, Acts 15. And it's it's Peter who talks about, well, God treated the uh, when I preached in Cornelius' household, a Gentile, the Spirit came down on the Gentiles just like we received. So we're not any really better than the Gentiles in that sense. And then Paul was telling about all the wonderful things that was God was doing among the Gentiles. And and then James gets up and says, Amos, Amos, Amos chapter 9. He quotes Amos chapter 9 saying, how the, the 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 ruins of david would be rebuilt well how through the gentiles being brought into the faith you know when <clears throat> we know that uh, we know that the the jews were the original covenant people of god and in the scripture they they deserved to receive the gospel first remember when jesus sent out the 70 he says don't go to the gentiles go only to the house of israel why was that? Was he discriminating for some reason against the Gentiles? No, that day would come later on through the apostles. But for the time being, go to the lost house of Israel and preach to them. Well, why? Well, they deserve to hear it first. And Paul in Romans 1.16 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of God. It is the power of God and salvation to the Jew first and then to the Greeks. And Paul's practice was to go into the synagogues, Why? Because the Jews needed to hear. But when they, in Acts 13, refused to heed, Paul says, I've had it. I've had it with you. You have proved yourself to be unworthy of the kingdom of God. I'm going to now turn my attention to the Gentiles. And from henceforth, he went primarily to the Gentiles. For after all, he was called to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Well, Paul's intention, he brings this out, of course, in his epistles, that God had always intended to merge the ancient people of God, the Jewish people, with the Gentiles to make them, as Ephesians 2, most beautifully states it, one holy temple, one people of God, where there is no barrier any longer between Jew and Gentile. We're all in the church, of Jesus Christ. It was always God's purpose to 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 reach out to the Gentile world. Well, in verses 25 and 26 of John 12, we see the truth of verse 24 applied only to Jesus. He alone dies as a substitute which produces great fruit. Because he says, well, as I mentioned, verse 25 and 26, He who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in the world shall keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, let him follow me and where I am, there he shall be my servant. Also be, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. He alone dies, now Jesus alone dies as the substitute for sin. Let me just emphasize again, in when, we, when we share the gospel with people, at some point, you have to talk about the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. Why? Because that's the only way we're saved. The scripture makes it very clear, we're not saved by our works. We can't do it. We're sinners and as sinners, we deserve to die. We can't get into heaven by good work. And let's face it, is that not where most people are? Most people think, "Well, my good works outweigh my bad works. That's how I'm going to make it." We we have to inform them that is not how you're going to make it. That's not how any of us make it. The only way we're going to make it, you've because God demands perfection. We can't foul up one time, not once. And therefore, we we have to talk about the substitutionary atonement. And that's that's what Jesus is stressing. I am that atonement. That is the way these Gentiles are going to come to to know me or anybody. So, not only as to Christ, he says there's, there's, there's going to have to be fruit. Now, in this regard, as to Christ, if there is to be fruit, he has to die. That's the only one. As to his disciples, now notice he says here, if you notice, if, verse 26, if anyone serves me, let him follow me where I am there shall my servant be. And verse 25, if you love your life, you're going to lose it. But if you, lo- it, but he who hates his life in this world, shall keep it to life eternal. Now, a genuine Christian is a person who's not trusting in their own works. They've given that up. The only way I'm going to make it is being clothed in the righteousness of Jesus that's the only way I'm going to make it now if I'm a genuine christian remember Jess has been stressing if there's no fruit means if there are if there is no fruit remember what he said you're not a christian if there's zero fruit now we know in our sanctification that Jesus uh, said there's going to be some bare 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold, but at least there's going to be some fruit. And in, we're going to see, uh, when we get to John 15, Jesus is going to say, No one, the branch cannot <clears throat> function apart from the uh, the vine. And if you belong to me, he says, You will prove yourself to be one of my disciples if you bear much fruit. Turn with me to, we're going to look at several passages that will expand what verses 25 and 26 says. Turn with me over to Matthew chapter 10. And look at verses 37 through 39. Jesus was quite blunt with people. Well, start at verse 36, he says, a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life shall lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake shall find it. Here's how blunt Jesus was to people. You cannot have any rival of affection besides mine. You can't love anything more than your love for me. And it gets real personal. A father and mother with their children, and children to their parents. You can't get, you, you've got to give up all, if that's what is necessary to follow Jesus, you've got to be willing to give it up. Now, I was a Christian in college, but I remember I lived only 25 miles uh, from my home, my parents' home, And every weekend, I would go home, be with my parents. I just liked being around my parents. And I remember we were having a Bible study. (laughs) And it's interesting, our Bible study decided to come over to my parents' house to have it, and the leader of our ministry happened to be teaching out of Luke 14 about you got to be willing to give up everything. And, buddy, that, that hit home. I remember Tom saying to me, John, you know, you go home every weekend, which is fine. But you know, maybe the Lord might want you to stay on the campus and not go home every weekend. And when he was teaching on this, he wasn't deliberately doing that. it just happened to be the text. And boy, the Lord hit me and hung. I said, am I willing to give up coming home every weekend if that's what it means to follow Jesus? I better be willing to do that. And I was by God's grace, I was able to do that. And there was a certain freedom there. But you see, there's going to be a task given to us all. In Jesus' memory, there are people come to him, oh, Jesus, I'll follow you, but let me go bury my father. What do you say to him? You thought, well, this is heartless. Let the dead bury the dead, but you follow me. Well, if the man has his hand to the plow? And he turns back and says, No, once you start, you've got to keep going. The whole point that Jesus is emphasizing, I have to be your greatest love. I have to be that greatest love. No one else. And you gotta be willing, if that's what it takes, to sacrifice all to follow me. And so <sighs> take a look at Mark eight. 34 through 38. Mark 8, 34 through 38. And he summoned the multitude with his disciples and said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels shall save it. In other words, whatever you and I have to give up, it's worth it. It is worth it. And you know, there are some people who don't want to give it all up. They don't. And if, if we love the world, remember the young rich ruler came to Jesus? What must I do to inherit eternal life, Jesus? Well, you know the commandments. It's interesting. He said, you know the commandments. And he quoted part of the Ten Commandments. And uh, the young man says, well, I've kept them all. Is there anything else? And <clears throat> one of the other gospel accounts says that Jesus loved him and said, he He's being naive. He doesn't understand. He was rich. And when, G- when Jesus Oh, yeah, there's one other thing. Go sell everything you have and follow me. Everything. Everything. <laughs> he wasn't willing to do it, was he? Oh, it's Jesus said, disciples, they're they're just in in, in, in Matthew's account, they cannot believe what's happening. He says, well, who then can be saved, Jesus? Well, what is impossible with men is possible with God. It's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. you got to be willing to give up all your earthly possessions if that's what God demands. Now, He may not always demand that of you, that magnitude, but He might. Maybe He's going to find out. Told the story at Presbytery. I, I don't know if some of you, some of you may have known of Brother Andrew. He was he was uh, uh the God smuggler. He would uh, was, he wrote a book called God Smuggler, he smuggled books in the 50s and the 60s into iron uh, curtain countries. And um I heard Brother Andrew speak in 1972 at this big evangelical meeting in Dallas. So I got to hear him personally, and he told the story about these soldiers coming into this church and it was dangerous to be worshiping in a communist country, okay? These two soldiers come bur- bursting in with machine guns. says, all of you, you know what's about to happen. If you don't believe in this Jesus, then you get out. bunch of people got out. and As they left, the soldiers closed the door, put the guns down, says, Good, we just want to be sure we were worshiping with the real thing. Now, I don't sanction their tactic, but it kind of worked, didn't it? Some of those people willing to die for Jesus. There are a lot of people in church history willing to die for Jesus. You want to be thrilled? Read some of the stories of the Covenanters and what they were dealing, and especially called uh, the two McDonald's who in Scotland because they wouldn't bow and give up their presbyterian form of government and not bow to what the catholics were saying had to be done or else and they took the 18-year-old mary i mean margaret out and the older margaret out they put the older margaret out so that the tide would come in and she would drown first And as she was drowning, they turned to the eighteen year old and says, Do you want to recant? Do you want to recant? And the eighteen year old girl refused to recant and died as a martyr. You know, the history of the church is replete with all these stories of people that are willing not who are willing to lose their life. But you just think Jesus said. If you lose it for my sake, you and the Gospels, you will gain it. You will gain it in the end. It is all worth it. So back to John 12 and verse 26. um, If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall my servant also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. You know, the way to great glory and honor for the disciple of Jesus is the same route that Jesus took. Sacrifice. Now, we're told in verse 27 of John that Jesus was very troubled. Look what it says. Now, my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to and to this hour. And so what we see here, Jesus <clears throat> says that it bothered him. I mean, after all, he was a real man. But the God-man was always immediately would be subservient to the Father's will. But he did cross his mind. If there's any other way, Father, than this way, but if it's not, but if it's not, Father, so be it. Why do you think he swept drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane? Because he knew what was about to happen. But he was willing to do it for us, right? Right? Who who was he dying for? For himself? Of course not. He was dying for us. For us. That's why he did it. That's why he was willing to suffer that way. For us. Now we're told, verse 28, Father, glorify thy name. And immediately it says, look what it says. There came therefore a voice out of heaven, I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. All we, you and I are talking about times where God has spoken audibly. Well, this is one case where God the Father spoke audibly and look at verse 29. The multitude, therefore, who stood by and heard it, they heard it, were saying that it thundered others say we're saying an angel has spoken to him and jesus says and this is significant in verse 30 this voice has, has come not for my sake but for your sake do you remember we talked about when Jesus raised, well, he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. In John eleven, it says he openly prayed out loud to his father. Says, "Father, you always give me what I want, and I am praying that these here will hear me and will know that I am essentially the Christ." and that the Father will give me anything I want. But I'm praying it for the sake of those Jews who are about to witness something unbelievable. A man coming back from the dead after four days of being in the tomb, whose body was already beginning to decompose. And so what we see here, we recall he want, he, this voice comes out. Now, he said, the voice came out for your sake. Their sake what? Jesus wanted them to know, look, I've been telling you all along I have come from the Father, but you keep refusing to believe it. So I'm going to let a voice from heaven come out and be a sign, a sign to you, I really am who I've been saying that I am. Therefore, they're without excuse. They heard him. And again, remember what's the purpose of a miracle? To create a great sense of all. And these miracles were signs. Remember, that's the whole purpose of the book of the Gospel of John, that these signs were to demonstrate that Jesus is the Christ in that believing in him you would have eternal life that is the purpose of the gospel of john and jesus says you've heard the father speak audibly i am that i am that promised one now in verses 31 and through 33 notice what jesus says Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world shall be cast out. And if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Verse 33. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death he was about to die. Well, the kind of death... By which he was to die. When Jesus was crucified, it appeared that the devil had won. Remember, when Jesus says, There's someone who's going to betray me, and the scripture says that. The devil entered the heart of Judas Iscariot to go out and betray Jesus. The devil entered the heart, the scripture says, of Judas to go out and betray him. Now, the scripture refers to the devil as the ruler. He says, the ruler of this world is about to be cast out. Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. So in one sense, though God owns everything, the world system, the the whole dominion of men was under the control of the devil. He was the ruler, the God of this world. But Jesus says, the God of this world is about to be cast out. Well, we're going to see what he meant about to be cast out the casting out is defined here in the text itself well i will be lifted up meaning i will drop die but in my death i'm going to draw all men meaning people from all kinds all over the the globe are going to be drawn to me that's what he means Remember in John 3, 3, if you turn back to John 3, 14 and 18, Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus, and he said, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes may in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son to the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. There are several other passages that we ought to take a look at when Jesus says this God is about to be cast out. The God of this world is about judgments coming upon him, about to to be cast out. Remember, it goes all the way back to Genesis 3, 15, called the proto In God pronouncing the curses upon the parties, he says, <clears throat> with reference to the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, the seed of the serpent shall bruise his heel, but the seed of the woman shall crush his head. Well, we know from the scripture that the seed of the woman is is the Messiah, Jesus. And the seed of the serpent is the devil and all who belong to him. And what he's saying here is, oh, the devil will kill Jesus. God is gonna allow the devil to have his way. Remember, when they came to arrest Jesus, He said to him, when Peter was ready, he took off that sword and cut off the ear of the the servant. Jesus says, Put up the the sword, Peter. Don't you think I could call on 12 legions of angels to deliver me if I wanted? No, he says, That is not the way. I'm going to have to die. And he said to those who come to rest him, He says, The The power of darkness has been given over to you. Isn't that interesting? The power of darkness. Oh, your hour has come to kill me. And you will kill me. But guess what? In killing me, you have sealed your doom, devil. (laughs) You have sealed your doom. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, look at verses 14 through 18. Since then the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. And might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he doesn't give help to angels, but he gives help to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make, there's our word, propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that while he was suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are temple. Now we got to ask the question, how is it that the devil had the power of death? Here's how he had the power of death. Remember, it may have been this morning, how does sin is defined? Well, scripturally, sin is defined in 1 John 3, 4. Whoever commits sin commits lawlessness, for sin is lawlessness. And the scripture says, the wages of sin is death. So what do you think the devil does? How did the devil have the power of death? He tempts us and in his tempting us because we are weak. We fall into sin. But guess what? Jesus on the cross rendered the devil and that power is no longer, in other words, Jesus as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15, he took the stinger out of death. And the scripture says in 1 Corinthians 15, the sting of death is the law. And so we see <clears throat> that when the law no longer has that power over us, and so when the devil comes and says, hey, look, you're a, you sin, you don't deserve this, and you go, you know, you're right. I don't deserve anything. But hallelujah, I had a Savior who paid the price, the propitiation price for me. Get lost, devil. Just get lost. You don't have any power over me. The dominion has been dealt with. That's why, turn over to Colossians uh, 2. Colossians 2 we read in verse 14 and following, having counseled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us and has taken it out of the way and nailed it to the cross. You know what Jesus did to all of our sins, brethren? He took every single one that we've done, every one we're doing now, every sin we will ever do, and those sins were nailed on Calvary's cross. And what was the impact of that nailing? When he, he has taken it out of the way, he has disarmed the rulers and authorities. Well, who's that? The devil in the, in the demonic realm. He made public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. You know, when Jesus says, this, the, the, the God of this world, back to John 12, the God of this world, judgment has come, he's going to be cast out. What he means is, the stranglehold that the devil had on the world has come to an end with the death of Jesus. Look it up some other time, but go to Revelation 20, verses 1 through 4, talks about the reign of the, of the uh, Messiah, And it says that he will bind that great dragon, which is the devil, and will bind him for a thousand years so that he can no longer deceive the nations. That's what the text says. Do you remember when Jesus was being tempted by the devil in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights? Remember the last temptations? Devil said, if you just bow down to me, Jesus, take a look here. He may have shown him a vision of all the kingdoms of the world. If you just bow down to me, you'll have all the kingdoms, Jesus. Why could the devil say that? Because all the nations were in his control in one sense. God the Father had allowed it, but with the coming of Jesus and his death on the cross... What power the devil had was completely shattered. Now, the scripture does say in Peter, he is still a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. You know why the gospel has had the success that it has had for the last 2,000 years? It's because the devil has been cast out as the deceiver of the nations. That's why the gospel has had this success. In fulfillment of a Psalm 110, remember, Peter quotes Psalm 110 with the ascension of Jesus on the day of Pentecost. Why would he quote that? Because in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, you've got three thousand people converted at Pentecost. Well, how did that come about? Because the ruler of the world of this world. Has been cast out. He's no longer deceiving the world as he once did. And now the gospel is having free access. And basically, from a military term, it's just a mopping up process, <laughs> is what it is now. <clears throat> Take a look at verse 34. The multitude therefore answered him We heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever, and how can you say the Son of Man be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Well Jesus has been telling him all along who the Son of Man is. They just still wouldn't believe it. And Jesus said verse thirty five. Jesus said therefore to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, that the darkness may not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, in order that you may become sons of light. What Jesus is saying I'm only going to be with you for, essentially, a few more days. I am the light of the world. Jesus began his ministry, recorded in Matthew 4, in Galilee of the, Gent- Galilee of the Gentiles, in the land of Zebulun, and Jesus began his ministry there. Why? Because it, because it says, Matthew says, it was prophesied that's where it would start in Isaiah. And it says he came to those sitting in darkness under the shadow of death. And those who were sitting in darkness under the shadow of death Saw a great light. What light is that? The light of the world. And what did Jesus say when you saw that light in Matthew four seventeen? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus is saying to that multitude, you're not going to have the light with you for very much longer. Uh, that is me as that light. And so while you have it, take advantage of it. Now, the, the Jews, they, we, do, we ought to give them more credit than what we normally do. Like the fishermen, Peter and Andrew, knew more of the scripture we were revealed in John than we thought that, you know, well, these are just fishermen. Well, they, they knew the Bible pretty well because they understood certain things. They didn't fully understand it, but they understood certain prophecies. Oh, this is the, this is the one promise to come. Well, where'd they get that from? From Deuteronomy. Well, they knew about Deuteronomy. Even the Samaritans, the Samaritan woman, knew about the promise of the Messiah coming. But what they didn't understand is that the Messiah would have to come first as a suffering servant. And then he would be that great king that would destroy all their enemies. But he had to first come as a servant. And guess what this servant is going to do? He's going to die. And these Jews says, what? We, we don't understand. What do you mean die? We're told, we read in the scripture, the Messiah is to live in perpetuity. Well, they only understood in part. They got it partly right, but they got a half of it seriously wrong. The Pharisees and the scribes, they understood a the part, but they missed totally the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. If they had known their scriptures, they would have known better. You know, Jesus several times, he always takes people back to the scriptures, and he says, when there was a debate about the Sadducees who didn't believe in a resurrection of the dead, When a woman dies, and she's had multiple husbands in this world, which which shall she have in the world to come? And Jesus says, well, there ain't going to be any marriage in heaven to come. But I will tell you this. He says, you do err because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. That's Matthew 22. You err because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. And so all along, Jesus says, I've got to die. It's the only way. And to these Gentiles who wanted to talk to them. he says, look, you can be saved, but this is how you're going to be saved. You know the glory, and I'll end with this. You know, Paul says in Romans 9, the Jews who sought righteousness through the law never attained it. And the Gentiles who did not have the law, attained what the Jews could not attain. Because he says, the Gentiles sought it through faith, not by works. That's how they came in. And so this great harvest, Jesus says, when I die, there's going to be a great harvest for I will be lifted up and I will draw all men to myself. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, I know nothing but Christ crucified, and that is what I preach. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you he paid it all, that he was that propitiatory sacrifice, that that certificate of debt was removed. We thank you that we're clothed with his righteousness. We thank you that the devil has no power over us now because we belong to you, Jesus. We thank you for what you did. Help us through it. And Lord, whatever sacrifice you require of us, help us to, to pay that price because we will be with you in glory. So whatever price you demand will be worth it. Hallelujah. Amen.